Hi, welcome to the newest episode of The Adoption Files. This is your host, Andy Stanley. Joining me today is the author of Hidden Identities, also known as The Adopted Genealogist. Say hello to Lynn Grubb. Hi, Andy. Thanks for the introduction. It's great to be here. Yeah, so happy to have you here again. Lynn was my very first interview. She's the one that this is all on her. This is her fault, this podcast. (laughs) This is all Lynn, everybody. I take that as a compliment. Oh, well, thank you. So (laughs) uh, today we're going to do things a little bit differently. Lynn is actually going to ask me questions. So this this should be, this will be different. I'm not used to somebody asking me the questions, so. Yes, we're turning the focus back on you. Ah, well, we know how hard I try to keep that from happening. (laughs) (laughs) Well, um, are you ready for your first question? Sure. Well, before we got logged into Zoom here, I was listening to the Wandering Tree podcast. Um, You had an interview with Lisa Ann, and I wanted to kind of get up to speed on what you've already shared out there publicly. And I was very, uh, I was shocked at how much, how many hoops you had to jump through just to get your own identity, even in a place like the UK, where it's considered quote open. Is that, is that correct? Do I understand that correct? Yeah. And I think that a big part of the problem that I experienced was being located outside of the United Kingdom. So as an adoptee who is adopted transnationally, I grew up in the United States So I did not know any of the procedures. The whole bureaucracy was unknown to me. And this was also in 1999. So you couldn't just go online and fill out a form and, you know, give them your credit card. It didn't work that way back then. Yeah, it was still old school searching back then. Very much so. So what provoked you to start searching? I know you're a late discovery adoptee. Do you want to share a little bit about um, when you discovered your adoption and how soon after you decided to search? So I was told after finding out accidentally, I, I was actually had it confirmed that I was adopted a few weeks before my 33rd birthday. And I had always felt like something was off, like there was something wrong when I was growing up, but I just assumed that there was something wrong with me because all of my questions were treated like I was being ridiculous and I had an overactive imagination and I was a daydreamer and they just didn't know where all these stories came from. May I ask what it was that you were feeling or noticing that made you feel off kilter or thought that you weren't being told something. Can you give a few examples? So the first time I asked my adoptive mom if I was adopted was that classic first grade assignment where you do your family tree. And my classmates were showing up at school with these colorful posters with pictures of their pregnant moms and pictures of them being held in the hospital bed. And I was being given pictures of when I was clearly like old enough to hold up my head. 
So, so something was missing, like baby pictures. Yeah. And there was no, there were no pictures of my mom when she was pregnant with me. So it all just felt really strange. And so I asked her if I was adopted and she froze. Like she went white as a sheet and just was frozen like a statue in front of me. And then she immediately just started saying like, why would you ask me that? What kind of question is that? That's a ridiculous question. And I said, well, you don't have any baby pictures. Oh, we have lots of baby pictures of you. So that first frozen moment was repeated hundreds of times when I was growing up, you know, I would ask, why don't I look like anybody else in the family? Oh, no, no, you look, you're built just like your Aunt Pat. Well, I knew my Aunt Pat, I wasn't built like my Aunt Pat, <laughs> but there were always these like moments where everybody in the room would just kind of freeze and look at each other. Like they were waiting to see who was going to answer this question. And it always made me feel like, what's wrong with me? Why am I upsetting people? You know, why are my questions so traumatic for these people? It must be something I'm doing. So eventually I just stopped asking the questions. Because you'd always get the same answer, right? Like this is not, you're definitely not adopted. These pictures exist somewhere, even though you hadn't seen them, right? Oh, yeah. It was like the basement flooded when we first moved here. Seriously. And you know, all of my wedding photos were destroyed. So the implication was your baby pictures were in there and they were destroyed. And I don't think she ever like flat out lied. She just always had some work around. And my father would just laugh like, ha ha, that's such a funny question. And then move on. Like I hadn't spoken. And that became the family habit. They would just act like I hadn't said anything. So I could be crying and asking questions and they would just go along like nothing had been said. Like I so was, they never consoled you, like, um, you know, gave you a hug or said, we're sorry you're feeling that way or. No, 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 that's never to this day. It's been it's been what, 23 years since discovery. And to this day, none of them have ever asked me how I felt about any of it or apologized for lying to me or acknowledged any of the problems that the whole it's such a deep betrayal and as someone who was told I was adopted my heart breaks for you um before we started this interview we had talked about how even though we have those differences like I grew up knowing you didn't we still have so much in common with our adoption story our feelings our beliefs the difference was is that I had more time to accept the fact that I was adopted and you were told at such a late period that it was such a shock. Could you, do you want to share a little bit about when you did actually find out? So when I found out, I, I had been sent a box of photos that was intended for I, my adoptive mom's daughter, and it had a picture in it 
and it was dated the month before I was born. And there was absolutely no way <laughs> that this was a pregnant lady. So I wasn't ready to deal with it at that point. And I stuck it back in the box and put it on the shelf because I knew, I think I knew what it meant, but I was still looking for some, like maybe the date was wrong. And you were trying to find some way to explain that the story really was true that your mom was sharing. Yeah, because she didn't know, want to believe it. I'm guessing. Is that right? Well, no, I didn't want, I wanted to be a part of what I was told was my family, but I was so different from everyone. And now when I see pictures of us all together, I think, how did I ever, how did I ever think that I could possibly, like I was the genetic freak, you know, <laughs> like it was bigger than everybody. And it was just, I don't know, there were so many differences. And so then my adoptive mom, cause my adoptive dad died when I was 12. So I'm now 33 and she came out to visit and we sat down to look at the pictures and then I took the picture out and she froze and asked me where I'd gotten it. And I told her she sent me the wrong box and she just got up and left. And yeah, she just got her purse and left my house and went back to her hotel. So she and didn't want to explain what all that meant. Oh, I think she was terrified really from the way that she looked. And then she called me and invited me to a restaurant to have lunch with her. I, and I've talked about this a little bit on, on another podcast, but I went to this extremely busy, very popular restaurant at lunchtime. And she chose a table in the middle of the dining room. So we're surrounded by people, they're chatting, they're having a good time. And she sits me down and says, you're adopted. And that's literally, she just went, you're adopted. No uh, introduction, just straight. That just straight. straight, like you're adopted. And that was, it was like falling off a cliff. And I really felt like I was, you know, and hitting the ocean and I felt like all the air had been knocked out of me and I was just flailing. I was absolutely just drowning from the moment she said that it's like something switched on and all of the tears that I had never been able to let out over decades about you know, my adoptive dad's death and my adopted brother's death and just all of the different things that had happened and all of the lies, it all just hit me. And it was in incredibly painful. But I, I imagine. Yeah, you know, but I had two young kids and a husband and a job and a dog. <laughs> I had so many other things going on in my life that the six months of sobbing that I did was this indulgence. That's the way it kind of ended up being treated. Like I was indulging myself 
and I needed because to get my all were expected to meet all of your responsibilities at the same time you're trying to process this major trauma yeah and I'm supposed to act like everything is okay because now my my adoptive mom is scared that she's going to lose me so I'm comforting her so it I'm became scared. about her emotions and not about yours absolutely it was about you know all of the trauma that she had endured with her lost children and her husband dying. And I was supposed to understand and I was supposed to acknowledge how lucky I was that they adopted me. And I was supposed to understand that it was just the times and that's how things were done, which is baloney because her brother had two daughters that he adopted and everybody knew. And they did, they knew too, the kids? Yes. Yeah, they knew. They knew I was adopted. And they always wondered why they weren't allowed to tell me. Yeah, that seems really unfair when you have other adoptees in the family that have knowledge of their own adoption to be expected to keep that from you. Well, I think telling her own kids that they had to lie to me was abusive. I mean, I really believe that being lied to uh, up, up until she died about so many things is abusive. And I agree with you wholeheartedly. I feel that it's emotional abuse. Yeah. I mean, absolutely. There's no real foundation for intimacy when your relationships are built on lies. And so she never really knew me and I never really knew her. And none of them could ever become close to me because they always had to be on guard about what they said. So they set the relation up to fail, the relationships up to fail Absolutely. from the beginning by asking them to pretend that you weren't adopted. Absolutely. They're much more comfortable when I'm not around. And I understand that. I don't like it, but I understand it. They were kids and they were told to lie at the same time that they're going to, you know, Catholic school and mass every weekend and being told that lying is a terrible sin. They're being told that, but in this case, it's okay. Wow. Yeah. I can see where that would be very traumatic. And in order to continue on with your regular life, you would have to like compartmentalize some of that pain to, you know, be able to function every day. Oh yeah. Yeah. It became this thing that I just didn't have time for. And I was being told that it didn't matter and it didn't change anything. And they loved me and they were just trying to protect me. And I think for a long time, I needed to believe it because I just didn't have the tools to cope with what I was going through. And I, and I didn't know any other adoptees. Yes. I heard you tell Lisa Ann on the wandering tree that you had no support system. So yeah, you were doing this by yourself and I'm just curious about how your husband and I imagine your kids were probably young, but how did your husband um, take the news? He thought it explained a lot because he had noticed so many things that didn't make sense to him. 
So for him, he felt like it explained a lot. He also had a lot of respect for my adoptive mom because she really was a very outwardly strong person and a, and a very outwardly successful person. You had to get to know her to realize that she lived her whole life in fear. Um, so he had really mixed emotions, I think. He was angry with them for lying to me because he could see how much it hurt me. But he also couldn't understand why it mattered as much to me as it did. He doesn't have a close relationship with his own family. So family connections don't mean as much to him as they do to me. He just considers me and his kids his family and he's okay with that. Yeah, I can see that. I can totally get that. And, you know, as we've been in the community more, we see that non-adoptees have a hard time grasping all of this, right? It's really one of those things that you have to live to truly grasp. Yeah. And I, and I don't blame people for not being able to understand something that they've never been through. Mm -hmm. I do get frustrated when they have this strange need to, to deny our experience. They haven't lived it and they can say that they don't understand it, but they can simultaneously tell us that it doesn't matter. You had great, you know, you had great parents, you grew up in a nice house, you wore nice clothes, you know, that's what they see. They see the outward stuff, but they don't, you know, they didn't know the screaming woman. They didn't know, you know, (laughs) they didn't know all of that other stuff. They didn't, they don't know our internal landscape and how all of this affected us on the inside. Correct. And no amount of you know, swim lessons and ponies can take that away, you know? Yeah. You know, I talked to a lot of adoptees who I used to think it was just me, but I literally don't have a concept of how I look to other people. And I have a very hard time with my own self image. And I think it's because I never saw my own features reflected in anyone else. So I can't, it's just a strange feeling. It's like the genetic mirroring thing. And until you actually have that, it's almost like you don't even know what you're missing. Yeah. And that's how I feel anyway. Yeah. And I think when you do see somebody who you see yourself in, it's very overwhelming. It's exciting, but it's also really strange. Yeah. Um, and it is. Yeah. And then In a good it, way <laughs> for me anyway. Yeah. I think it's, it's odd because I can see a little bit of myself in my maternal grandmother, but my maternal grandmother was such an awful person that I don't like that. I have that resemblance. It's, mm-hmm. I'm more comforted by the fact that I more strongly resemble my paternal side, even though they're like the wrong parent for me to resemble. Yeah. I have that too. in my story. Yeah. Yep. My father was, um, the wrong father had my mother got pregnant by the right father who she was dating and planning to marry. She would have kept me. She told me. 
Oh. So yeah, knowing that and knowing you have the wrong father it, and the self-image piece, um, all of that. I mean, I have self-image issues as well. And I think, I, I honestly feel like it kind of goes with the territory of being adopted. Like, how are we supposed to develop an authentic identity when it's being hidden from us? You know, when <clears throat> it's built on untruths. Yeah, I, that makes sense. And creating a good self-image when you know you don't fit is, is very difficult because we base our standards on our surroundings, you know, what's good and what's bad. And when you don't look like the people or act like the people that you're growing up with, that sense of belonging and that sense of correctness is just, it's missing. I feel like a lot of us just develop an outsider view of ourselves. Yeah. Like you're looking from the, yeah, I get that. Yeah. Yep. My mom always used to say that I was always for the underdog. And I think that just is part of my outsider thing. Like I'm going to cheer the outsider and the underdog because I'm one too. For me, I was bullied so badly in, in elementary school that I made a promise to myself that I would not gossip about people. I, if I had something to say about somebody, if I couldn't say it to their face, then I wouldn't say it at all. And, and also, you know, if somebody was being picked on, it was important for me to say something. Well, I think you had some very strong ethics from a very young age. I'm impressed. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, we earn them the hard way. That's right. You knew how it felt to be bullied and you weren't going to put anyone else through that. And I think that's admirable. Yeah. Well, thanks. It doesn't mean I'm always perfect. I lose my temper sometimes. None of us are. Yeah. So I'm curious then how long from your discovery, and you said it was 33, right? You were 33. I know you said you cried for six months. How long from the point of that lunch when your mom dropped the bomb, did, did it take for you to say, okay, I'm going to start searching. Oh, I started searching the day she told me. Oh, wow. Yeah. I started trying to figure things out because I needed to know what was true and what was not. I had grown up in this environment of deception and I didn't know what I can trust and what I couldn't. You know, I grew up listening to the stories of how my ancestors were you know, brave Irishmen who defied the English and how they fought on the side of the Union in in the Civil War. And my grandfather was a member of the Knights of Columbus, and he sent money to the Irish Republican Army every month. And, you know, I grew up with this mythology. You know, I had started learning Irish. I had, you know, I had that identity And then I thought, well, what if none of this is even true? How do I, I mean, the first thing I asked after she said you're adopted was, is my birthday even my birthday? Because you and I know how many places allow adopters to fabricate, you know, our place of birth, our birthdays, they change our name. Especially at the time we were born, they just took people's word for it on the birth certificate. So really anything could have been fabricated. 
yeah. during that era for sure. And the next question I asked her was, was I drugged in the nursery? Because I was left in the hospital nursery for the first two weeks after I was born. And they used to drug babies to keep them from crying. So that was a drug, you know, what they used. Oh, it was a sedative. And I, I am not entirely sure. I just do know that when I saw the name of the drug, I was horrified because it was the same drug that they were using during that time period to keep um, people in mental institutions calm. Oh, wow. Yeah. And they were giving it. be good. No, I wouldn't think so. But they were giving that to infants because they couldn't be bothered to take care of them. So I started, you know, I, she told me she would send me the papers that she had had my entire life. And so I waited for those. But at the same time, I started like kind of sifting through all of my memories and all of the questions that I had. And trying to figure out, you know, I was born in England, was, you know, were my parents English? Were they American? Were they Spanish? I I had no way of knowing. Would your mom share anything that she knew about your birth mom? She eventually did because I kept pestering her. She sent me the papers that she had and because they were removing a child from the UK who was a British citizen, they had to show that at least one of my parents was an American. So they had, she had kept a copy of my original passport application and that contained the um, date and place of birth and the names of my mother and my grandmother. Oh, wow. Yeah, so she had had these names for my entire life. When I first asked her who my mother was, she said, I don't know. But then she told me how wonderful it was because my adoptive dad had actually delivered me and he was my mother's doctor. Yeah, I just heard that when I just listened to that podcast you did with Lisa Ann. I was so shocked by that. Oh, your dad delivered you. Oh, yeah. He delivered me and he delivered my little brother that they adopted. So he knew both of our mothers because they saw him for months. They didn't just, you know, show up and give birth. They were staying in a mother's home run by a nurse that he knew. And so he was seeing them for, I think my mother was probably his patient for four months, five months. That is just a trip. Yeah. <laughs> I'm I, trying to wrap my brain around that one. I think you're the only adoptee I know with that storyline. Uh, yeah. And I asked if there were any issues because it seemed unethical to me. And my mother said, oh, no, no. And then I read through my adoption file and went, okay, there's a bunch of stuff in here about how concerned they were about him being the doctor and how even he was worried that he was going to get in trouble. So they went through this entire process of hiding 
his identity, like the fact that he was going to be my adoptive dad, they went through this whole process of hiding that from my mother. And they even were relieved because she had to go back to the U.S., because her father was in the, in the air force, her stepfather was in the air force and he was getting a new duty station back in the States. And they were relieved that they were going to be able to hand me over in secret that she was going to sign the papers and not be there when I was given to them. So I guess I just assumed she would know, but she did not. No, she did not know that her own doctor became your adoptive father. No, she did not know. And, wow. and my, her mother and stepdad, they had apparently made an agreement with my father's parents to take me, but they were told that my mother had an abortion. And so my maternal grandparents thought that my paternal grandparents had adopted me. So they were completely shocked when they found out that strangers had adopted me. I imagine so. Now your paternal side, um, well, we should probably, that's jumping ahead. So let's, <laughs> let's talk about what you did to begin your search. When I know you got the rec some records from your mom um, I know you got some records from the UK. Do you want to talk a little bit about that process and how you were required to jump through all of their bureaucracy? Well, finding my mother was not that difficult. It took me that whole first six months to find my grandmother because I assumed that my mother's name would have changed, that she probably would have married uh, by the time I found out but I thought that my grandmother's name and my grandfather's name would have stayed the same. So uh, this was back before the computers were easy. So I just got the yellow pages and started calling like everybody whose name was my grandfather's name in like Alabama, Georgia, Florida. Seriously, I was on the phone all day long calling people and some of them were super nice and others were just like, I don't know who this weirdo is who's calling me and asking me questions because I was calling and saying, you know, I'm doing genealogical research and I found some papers that indicate I might be related, you know, to a, this person who was in the Air Force in England at this time and you know, most of them were very polite and I couldn't, I was getting nowhere at all. So then I noticed that my mother and my grandmother were both born in the same place. They were both born in Fort Payne, Alabama. So my grandmother had an unusual to me last name. So I got out a map and I put a pin on Fort Payne, Alabama, and then I made a circle of 30 mile radius around the pin. And then I just started calling everybody with the last name that matched my grandmother's. And on my first phone call, I got my um, great aunt. Wow, that was lucky. Yeah, well, you know, I wish I had thought of this to begin with and hadn't wasted months calling everybody with my step grandpa's name, but it turned out that another cousin had already done this big genealogy book 
on the family because the family is prominent in the South. So they were used to people calling them and asking them genealogy questions. Oh, that was fortunate too. Yeah. So when I said I was looking for Francis, they, um, they said, Oh, here's her phone number. (laughs) I love it. (laughs) Yeah. And they gave me her phone number and she wasn't home. So they said they had told me she might be at my uncle's. So I called and I talked to my uncle for a while. I didn't tell him who I was. I told myself, if they ask me how I'm related to the family, I'll tell them. If they don't ask me, I'm not going to say, unless it's, you know, my mother that I'm talking to. And so I eventually got a hold of my grandmother and she asked me how I was related to the family. And so I told her that I was her granddaughter. And she said, oh, we wondered if we'd ever hear from you. (laughs) And then she said, I'm not going to tell your mother that you got in touch with me. And why? Because my mother had had a hard life and she was going through a difficult marriage and nobody knew that I existed and it would just cause too much turmoil. So she was not going to tell her. I... She eventually did, and it took a few months. So finding them was fairly easy. And I was told the story of how I came to be, that my father was in England visiting his parents, who were also in the Air Force. Um, And her parents and his parents knew one another from working. And they encouraged her to go out with him because he was a student at Yale. And they thought, oh, you know, maybe she can land (laughs) a a Yale student. And she said she didn't really even want to go out with him. So they dated and then they had sex and I resulted and she had been writing to him. So she had still thought of him as her boyfriend. But as soon as she told him that she was pregnant, Uh, She never heard from him again. His parents showed up at her parents wanting to know if they were going to charge my father with statutory rape because he was technically an adult and she was still a minor. And so that's when I guess they made their arrangements with one another. So all I really knew was that my father had been a student at Yale, that his father and my other grandfather had worked together at the NCO club on base. So I had the name of the base. I had the name of the NCO club. I had, I mean, that's pretty much all I had. And didn't you know something about, um, I remember you ordered a yearbook for something. (laughs) Yeah, I ordered, I ordered the Yale yearbooks for the year that that my father was there because I was like, maybe if I just look through this, I'll see somebody that looks familiar. And of course I didn't. There are hundreds of students and I had no idea what he looked like. So that was pointless, but I did that. And I was told that he went to Yale on a full ride scholarship, but they said it had something to do with the military. So when I called Yale and talked to Yale, They're like, no, we don't do that. What it was is he had won a full ride scholarship, but I had the wrong name of it. So they said- The name of the scholarship? Yeah. So they said, oh no, we don't have anybody here 
with that kind of scholarship. And then I went on the alumni boards for the high school that my mother graduated from because, you know, may, maybe somebody knew that she had been pregnant. And so then somebody did tell me, well, she was going out with this guy during the summer, but I don't know his name. I just know that his little brother went to school with us. So yeah, so then I, so then I'm looking for a yearbook from her school (laughs) so that I can think like, maybe I'll find somebody with this name in this yearbook and I'll find somebody with the same last name in the Yale yearbook and I can compare the two, but I could never get my hands on a yearbook from Lake and Heath Royal Air Force Base in England. Yes. And you couldn't just log into Ancestry and just do a search, right? Yeah. You know, years later, years later, somebody put up a a website for people who graduated from that high school. So I'm on there asking people questions and it gets back to my mother and now she's pitching an absolute fit because, you know, I'm outing her to people And I've already told her and my grandparents, I've been lied to my entire life. I am not going to be anybody's lie ever again. That's not going to happen. And there's an easy fix for this problem. Cough up the name. Yeah. And she just kept saying it was very traumatic and I don't remember. And I put it out of my mind and I, you know, you need to stop asking me because you're just, you're just hurting me. And it's, it doesn't matter. I gave you parents. I don't know what you need with my family. And she was a step parent adoption. And she somehow believed that that's the exact same thing as being given to strangers. So she likes to tell me I'm adopted too. And it doesn't matter to me. So it shouldn't matter to you. Yeah, it's not the same. I think people refer to it as adoptee light. <laughs> I mean, you can have terrible experiences with step parents, and she did. You know, her stepfather was not a great guy. I. It's still not the same as being relinquished from your mother. No, it's not no. the same. You still grow up with your siblings, with your, you know, grandparents. with mirroring. You get mirrored. Yeah. You see, yeah, you know these people. And, and even if you don't know your father, I'm not minimizing that experience. Um, you know, you have your mother, you have your mother's people. Yeah. And so I was not exactly welcomed by my mother's people. So I think that was part of wanting to know who my father was to see if maybe there would be some kind of acknowledgement there. And I didn't have his name and I didn't understand how England worked. So if you live in England, what I discovered is that they have these things called adoption councils and you can go to the adoption council in the district where you were born and you can request your adoption file. Is that an attorney? No, it's an actual um, service that's provided by the government and I, they may contract with nonprofits, but I don't think so. I think they're through the government. And you go, and if you were born after 1975, 
you can just go in and fill out an application and get your adoption file. But if you're born prior to 1975, you have to demonstrate that you're of sound mind before they'll give you your adoption file. So you have to see a UK certified therapist who decides whether you're nuts or not. And the, the wording at the time was kind of like, we want to make sure you're not going to hurt anybody. But all those people born after 75, no one was concerned about them, apparently. Yes, they thought times had changed. So should all be okay. It's so arbitrary. Let's just pick a cutoff. I, you know, I don't know because the, the UK, there was a lot of coercion, especially in Ireland when it came to adoptions and, you know, there've been scandals about the homes where, uh, you know, young women went and the level of coercion and the lies and the fabricating of information on, you know, birth certificates. And so I think that the laws around that may have changed around 75 to try to prevent some of the worst of the abuses. And so that it was kind of this acknowledgement that we did a lot of bad shit before 1975. And so this could be- I wanna make sure you aren't going postal once you find out what that bad shit is. Yeah, it was kind of like, uh, let's make sure. And I think they also maybe acknowledge that a lot of those of us who were born before that date um, we're probably going to be late discovery people or people who were going to find things in their files that were going to be disturbing. You know, there were a lot of things in my adoption file that I certainly was not told by my adoptive mom. So you have to apply through the adoption council because I lived in the United States there were only two UK approved therapists in the country. And one was in New York and one was in Southern California. And I really couldn't afford to go to either one of them because it was a trip for me. So now there are nine approved in California to do the counseling. And I'm not sure how many there are in the entire United States. How many sessions did you have to do? Well, remember, I had to find somebody who was willing to do it. And that took some work. I had to call a lot of different counseling uh, organizations before I found somebody who was a student who was going through the process and who was willing to get certified. So she wasn't even like a licensed therapist at the time, she was still being supervised. So there was this whole like layered process that we had to go through because she had to get permission from her supervisor and the supervisor had to get permission from somebody else. And so I think I ended up going, if you go to the UK and you live there, I think you only have to go to one session but I ended up having to go to multiple sessions. I know I went at least six times because we had to go through this whole 
process of like filling out the applications and filling out the paperwork and getting her certified and waiting for the paperwork to come back. And uh, I think all together from start to finish to get my file was about two years. Wow. That's pretty, that's a long time. Yeah, it took, it took a while. I mean, I realized that I am, I have a privilege that a lot of adoptees don't have. And that is that I had a right to receive my file. It just You just had to jump through a lot of hoops to get it. Yeah. And I am because I was in another country and that happens a lot. You know, people don't realize that there are a lot of us who are taken out of the country where we were born and we grow up in another country. You know, you're and then our family of origin may speak a completely different language than we do. And their bureaucracy can be extremely different. Some countries of origin, they don't even keep records. I mean, there are, there are Indian and Chinese and Vietnamese and South American and African, you know, adoptees who there's no record. And I know a lot of them don't even know their actual birth date. Yeah. And it's, it's just so heartbreaking. Yes. Or they purposefully put wrong information in the file. Yeah. But this was to protect us somehow. (laughs) This was to to make us safer in some way. So even though it took two years, you still know that you're privileged because you actually received a file. And I would say this segs into um, why you started your podcast, The Adoption Files, Because after your experience, I know you started learning that the state laws in the U.S. were so different than what you experienced. Yeah, I finally found the adoptee community online. I had been completely unaware that it existed. And when the pandemic started, I just didn't have anything to do. You know, I was stuck at home. My husband has health problems. So you know, every time I left the house, it was like, I have to be afraid I'm going to accidentally kill my husband. So I just kind of like hunkered down in my house and started looking for things to occupy myself. So I really dove into the search for my father. I had been looking on and off for, you know, for the 20 years before that, but I didn't have enough information to really do anything. It wasn't going anywhere. So I bought myself a DNA kit and I started going online and looking for uh, information for adoptees. And initially I was just finding things for adoptive parents. There are a ton of resources out there for adoptive parents, but not as much for adoptees. And then I just kind of stumbled onto this forum for late discovery people and another group through the Adoption Trauma Network. And I started to realize there are all these people who are looking and they don't have a right to access their own documents. I had noticed an attitude, excuse me. I had noticed an attitude in genealogy groups that I had been looking at uh, over the 20 years previous. And I had noticed this attitude of like, we're allowed to look for our history, but we're not gonna help these people 
these adopted people? Like, why are these adopted people even coming on here and asking questions? Like they should just accept their adoptive parents' pedigree and just be happy. Absolutely. And they're like, somebody contacted me and they think that I'm related to them, but I'm not going to respond because, you know, who do they think they are reaching out? How do their adoptive parents feel about this? Yeah, I do. This is such a betrayal of their adoptive parents. And it just, the attitude really bothered me. And it really bothered me that people were being told, this is the only way you can search. This is the only way you can do things. You have to use an intermediary or you have to write a letter or you can't just show up in their lives. You have to pretend to be somebody else. And yeah, there's so many rules around the whole birth family thing that, I mean, to me, they feel arbitrary, you know, who, who's making these rules. Some of them are for our own good, but a lot of them in my view are just so other people can make money. Yeah. That, and because they just don't want to deal with the emotional consequences of having denied people their identities You know, it's like they have to admit that maybe they could have made better decisions in the past. The research was out there. The research was out there before the baby scoop era that children need to know where they come from. Yeah. They just decided they knew better. You know, we were blank slates. Well, and like you said, somebody was making money off of us. Mm -hmm. I mean, in today dollars, my adoption was cheap. I cost like $26,000 to be adopted I think I was 500 oh wow okay you were that was a bargain (laughs) you were super cheap oh my gosh no I was like 26 grand wow yeah and that was cheap (laughs) because they lived there if they had had to go and pick me up they would have had to pay for airfare and the accommodations and everything else so I would have been more expensive so yeah people are paying upwards of $40,000 for an, for a child now, but we don't call it a purchase. <laughs> you know, we, we call it a blessing and a miracle. And you were born to be in this family. And I'm like, you're the same people that say God doesn't make mistakes. Well, <laughs> <laughs> your logic has some problems. But uh, there needs to be this much mythology and this much explanation surrounding what happened. To me, that's a red flag that something's wrong. Yeah. I don't need someone else to explain to me that this was God's will. Why? Why are we even saying that? You know, to me, it's, it just feels coercive. Yeah. I think there was, I think there's a lot of coercion and a lot of lying and a lot of justification. I, people's ability to rationalize stuff is, is pretty incredible. And uh, yeah, especially things that they don't understand personally. Yeah. Yeah. So, so if you're an, if you're adopted in the UK, I guess I have to be careful because I was born in England and their records, most of England, you can just go and apply. There are a few places, I think, where the, they make it a little more difficult for you. But in Ireland and Scotland and Wales, uh, I think because of the coerc- coercive practices and because of the 
power of the Catholic church and the way things were done, there's, there were a lot more lies and a lot more uh, non-maintenance of accurate records. So I think it's still more difficult for people in Ireland, especially to get their records. And DNA tests can be difficult to acquire in, in some European countries. So I know that there are people who actually will take orders for people in other countries and then have the test kits delivered to England and then take them to the continent and give them to the people who've ordered them and then pick up the tests and take them back and then mail them for them. Is it because um, they're outlawed in certain parts of Europe? Yeah, there are some countries that the DNA tests are illegal. I wonder why. I wonder what the justification for that is. Well, I've heard, I know that a few years back in Australia, there was a huge push to outlaw commercial DNA kits because adoptees were using them to find their families. There's so few adoptees in Australia, though. They seem to be be more of a family preservation type country. Oh, there's absolutely a long history in Australia of forced adoptions. Just like here in the United States and in Canada, they treated the indigenous people terribly. And they took their kids from a lot of them. And I am aware of that. So the, it's the older generations that are using the DNA, not the current. Yeah, I think it's, you know, people in our age range, like from the baby scoop era, but there yeah. are younger people too. And so the argument was that the DNA tests were violating the parents' privacy. And so to preserve the parents' privacy, the test should not be available. And so it was this whole thing to, again, protect adoptive parents and, you know, some birth parents, because not every one of our parents wants to know about us. Uh, You know, there are circumstances where we're not welcome, Uh, but I don't see anything in the documents that guarantees any of my family I read an article today, Tony Constantino, I think wrote it, and he talked about privacy. He said, privacy, it's okay to have privacy against something you don't want me to know about you, but it's not okay to have privacy about something that's about me. And I think that really stood out for me because that's what we're talking about here is everybody wants to call privacy the adoptive parents or the birth parents. What about us? Yeah. And I think there's a difference between privacy and anonymity. If you Absolutely. don't, yeah, if you don't want me around once I find you, okay. Yeah. I don't necessarily want you around because we don't always mesh with our families. You know, they can be, we, we can recognize ourselves in them and we can celebrate knowing where we came from, but we may have very different politics or, you know, very different worldviews. And yes. yeah, so I- But anonymity, anonymity is saying, you know, nobody will ever know that you gave birth. I mean, that's not even realistic. 
Well, my mother and her family managed it for 33 years. Nobody knew except for my grandparents and my mother because they were in England and all the family was here. And her brothers were young enough that in the military, there was no American high school on Alkenberry, which is where my um, grandparents were stationed. So they routinely sent teenagers to boarding school uh, on another base. So it was easy for them to just tell people that she had gone away to school. And then she just came back when she graduated because graduation was the month after I was born. So she did her schoolwork while she was in the mother's home. And then she graduated with her classmates. So when they came back to the States, they just didn't tell anybody about me. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. So yeah, she could have anonymity until you became an adult and then requested your file. And then of course, there's no more anonymity because your information's in the file and a birth record was created. Yep. And I did finally get my birth certificate. Yay. Yeah, that took a while. It was very kind of crushing that I didn't have a name. I'm just baby girl on my certificate. And my father, even though they knew who he was, was not listed on my birth certificate. So um, I think she was told it was easier to give me up for adoption if my father's name wasn't on the certificate. And um, I just lost my train of thought. Well, I know that they didn't notify fathers back then, at least in the U.S. I'm not familiar with U.K. law, but I'm pretty sure unless you were married, you weren't going on, you weren't getting put on a birth certificate. Yeah, I, I think from looking at my file, I know that they went and talked to him. He did not. The agency or did you have an agency? So what they did. So I had my parents had a lawyer. And then because he was in the military and he was going to be my doctor or my mother's doctor, they got a representative to be like the mediator between the social workers and my my adoptive parents. Like they created all these layers to conceal who my adoptive parents were. So there was a social worker from the country And then there was the representative from the Air Force. And then there was the lawyer. So the social workers interviewed a whole bunch of people and they interviewed my father and his parents. He denied paternity, but he didn't deny that they went out together and that they, they may have had sex. So he didn't deny that. But he denied that he was my father. And then she denied that she was being coerced into giving me up for adoption. But then in the paperwork, it also acknowledges that she was abused by her stepfather and that her parents were um, pushing her to give me up for adoption. So there's all these contradictions in my paperwork. And wasn't she a minor, you said? She was, but she turned 18 while she was pregnant. 
Okay. So she, she was legally an adult. Yeah. But she was 18 years old in a foreign country. She doesn't have a job. She's still in high school. So she's dependent on her parents. Yes. Clearly. And there are no social services that are available to help her. Because if you were an unwed mother back then, it wasn't as bad in England as it was in Spain. Like my little brother who was adopted, his mother's parents were stationed in Spain and his father was Spanish and his mother was American. But in Spain, you couldn't rent an apartment or get a job if you were a single mother Wow. And who had never been married. So she, um, she made a decision to put him up for adoption. I think that she regretted. Well, I know she regretted it because she told me that she did when I found her and she had been waiting to hear from him. Um, And like my mom, she was waiting to hear from her child. Uh, so, you know, when you talk about that argument for privacy or anonymity, she had been hoping, you know, he would have been 54 when she found out that he had died when he was 12. So she had been waiting for 54 years to hear from him. That is just heartbreaking. Oh yeah. I felt, I mean, I, I wanted her to know because I couldn't imagine if you're somebody who has been waiting all that time to hear from your child and to never know what happened to them, I just, I couldn't do that. Such a cruel punishment of closed adoption. Yeah. I mean, she wanted to know if she had grandchildren, she wanted her sons. She had told her family about him. So she wanted her other sons to know their brother. And so it was a very different situation because she said, she had worked through her grief. She had actually done the work on her trauma that she experienced from giving up her child. Whereas my mother has never done that. And I think, go ahead. Sorry. I just, I think that's for a lot of us as adoptees, when we go into looking for reunion, a lot of the response that we're going to receive It's going to be based on whether or not our families did the work to process their grief and their own heartache. Exactly. And it also illustrates the the position that we're in as people who are going into these situations, not knowing how we will be received. So we're just walking into these family dynamics that we just, there's, you know, there's no amount of research that can tell you what are the dynamics of the family until you're already in? Yeah. You know, I read all these things and I, I know I went down like rabbit holes and things after you asked me about my podcast and everything, but I was reading all these things where, you know, they're telling people that this is how you should feel, or you shouldn't feel like that. Or, you know, this is the way you have to do your search. This is the way you have to do reunion. And I thought that's just utter garbage because you don't know. I have done it both ways. I have done it where I pretended I was doing genealogical research and I tried to ease my way into it. And I was super courteous and, and waited for them to tell the truth about me. And 
I walked on eggshells. And then I did it the other way where I just told my paternal siblings, hey, I'm your sister. This is me. This is how I came about. Neither way went really spectacularly. So you just don't know. I know other people who their families welcome them with open arms. Mm -hmm, Absolutely. Yeah, we don't know. In fact, um, I don't, I think all the rules that you refer to are just ways for people to feel like they have some control over things that are not controllable. I have no control over what my birth parents believe about me, know about me. I don't know what happened in their relationship. I don't know what they've told their families about me. I'm walking in blind and we're finding out everything after the fact. It could be 40, 50 years later that these stories have been floating around. And now here you are, you know, you're a life and you're a flesh and blood human being that they just see you as like this mythology, if they even know about you, you know? Yeah. And so, uh, you know, to kind of get back to what you asked me (laughs) about the (laughs) podcast, I was thinking that all these laws existed that prevented people from getting their documentation. And I also was seeing that, you know, some people lived in a state where they'd always had access, like, I think Alaska, they're just like, oh yeah, you can get it whenever you want to. Or California, where people are being forced to go to court and provide a compelling argument to receive their birth certificate. It's like, I have to be dying and need health information before you'll tell me who my parents are. And it just was ridiculous. It was absolutely ridiculous to me that they infantilize adoptees. They treat us like we're perpetual infants. They act like because they gave us a new name that we have no right to our original name. And they create all of these barriers that just create more trauma for adoptees. You know, there are all these physical and mental and emotional challenges that we're already dealing with. And now they're going to create more by putting in place a system that, you know, so many of us don't have the resources whether it's financial or emotional or physical resources to be able to pursue what should just be given to us. Totally agree. I mean, travel, genealogy, DNA testing, none of it's cheap. No, you know, money. Yeah. Driving to your adoption agency, five hours away, uh, having to get a hotel room, having to beg a stranger for your documents when they can look at them they can look at them and know who you are but you're not allowed to it's humiliating it's 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 demoralizing to know that somebody else holds all the power of whether you get to know your answers about your life yeah and you're an adult you're an adult person you know and it's just it's ridiculous so even though i have my own information, I just felt like maybe because I do have my own information, I felt like I am in a position 
in my life where I don't really care who I offend. You know, I don't need to, you know, have a financially successful podcast or blog because I, I can afford to do it without having to have that kind of pressure. So I don't have to worry about performing at a certain level. I can just try to get people's voices out there and try to provide information to other adoptees that hopefully will help them go through that process of applying for and receiving, hopefully, their information. And we can acknowledge the mental and physical and emotional challenges that that process presents and hopefully give people permission to feel whatever they're feeling and to find a support group and to develop some coping strategies. Because when you're denied over and over again, that takes a physical toll and an emotional toll. And when you're having to perform in front of people to convince them that you're of sound mind and they should give you your, your birth certificate, that's, that takes a toll. It's exhausting. Yeah. So it's like you have to justify yourself to other people when the rest of the world doesn't have to go through that to get a birth certificate or an adoption file. Yeah. And adoptees have already spent their entire lives performing for the benefit of other people. So in some ways, you know, we're familiar with how to perform, but it's also, like you said, it's exhausting and it's dehumanizing. And so, you know, the podcast, it's, like I said, it's a way to get people's voices out there. I also think talking about what we've been through is also a way that helps us to integrate our experience into our own personal narrative and it helps to empower us. And when we can share the things that have helped us to cope and we can share the insights that we have acquired with other people, that also helps us to feel better I think in some ways, sure. yeah, yeah. We, we, from what we've learned, we can save someone else the time and irritation. Like the first thing I would say to anybody listening out there is just test your DNA and ancestry before you start battling the state where you're adopted. <laughs> it's just, yeah. I mean, if you want to go that route and get all your paperwork, great, but just tested ancestry. There's over 20 million people in the database. Yeah, it's a multi-step process, I think, that is not acknowledged by non-adopted people because they can just fill out an application and get their information. Mm -hmm. They don't have to go through this process. And there's no uniform regulation of adoption in this country. Every state is allowed to regulate adoption however they wish. And they're allowed to put whatever barriers to access in place that they feel like doing. So you can't expect your experience in one state to be the same as what you'll confront in another state. So it has to be approached on a state-by-state -state basis. 
for so sure. We, we try to provide information, but for me, it's dependent on the people who are willing to share their story and who feel comfortable doing that without being re-traumatized. And, you know, my goal is to not re-traumatize people. It's to provide a safe place for people to share. So, you know, so far I've only spoken with people about a handful of states. The goal would be to um, talk about all of them and doing your DNA if you wanna know where you came from or what your ethnicity is, your history, is one of the fastest ways that you can determine that. The problem then is trying to figure out maternal from paternal, unless you have close matches show up pretty quickly. And the people who match with you may not be willing to communicate with you. So that that is definitely um, an issue. Um, that's why with a good search angel or a genealogist, you can figure all this out without actually talking to people. Yeah. And I think that's, that's a good point because I know a lot of people who get really confused and overwhelmed when they do their DNA and they look at it and they're like, okay, I have all these. That's normal. Yeah. I, yeah, it's totally normal to feel (laughs) overwhelmed and it takes time to learn how to use all the tools on ancestry And so a genealogist or a search angel can be invaluable. Yes. And And here's another thing. They also are not personally involved in your situation most of the times. So they can look at it a a little less passionately and um, a little more objectively. Mm -hmm. They don't worry as much about ruffling feathers, you know? Yeah. It's almost like if you're not adopted, you just have the sense of entitlement that I'm entitled to my genealogy. So one of the things I like to say to people is genealogy is for everybody. Um, You can approach any question you have as though you're investigating your genealogy. You don't have to use the words, I'm adopted. In fact, that might scare people off. Yeah, no, that's true. And, and, you know, and that irritates me it irritates me that we have to, again, perform in order to get something that we should just be entitled to as well. But I do acknowledge the fact that sometimes that's the only way you're going to get information. I mean, I felt, I felt like I was held hostage for 20 years because I was trying to please this person who had no intention of ever telling me the who my father was. And even when I found his name and I know without a doubt that this is my father because of my DNA, she refuses to acknowledge that that's who it is. She said, never heard of him. Yeah. You were held hostage and I have a similar story, but because I was older when I met my birth mom, I just, I wasn't going to allow her to hold me hostage. I was I was like, I'm moving on because she's never going to tell me. <laughs> yeah, I know. That's, I mean, it's good. Uh, I saw I, the writing on the wall, unfortunately. Yeah. And that's why, you know, if, for people who are listening to my long rambling explanation of things, <laughs> I'm not used to people asking me questions. I'm doing great. <laughs> it's, uh, thank you. It's, you're right, in my opinion to know who you are and where you came from. 
Now there's a difference in this country between ethical and legal standards. So in this country, we don't have a legal right in most states to our original identities. We're fighting for that to be recognized as one of our basic human rights. But the states, most of them at this time, do not recognize that as a legal right. Right now, we're mostly fighting on the basis of an ethical right, what we consider good and bad. And it can be a really difficult thing for adoptees to confront when they go to an agency and say, I have a right to this. And they're told, no, you don't. And that's that legal difference. They're abiding by the letter of the law. And you're looking for something that's that's right. And or fair. That's fair. Yeah. yeah. And so I just want to, you know, just be prepared. If you're going to embark on this, be prepared to confront that. And, and don't be afraid to look at the state laws and um, do a lot of research because a lot of states have opened up in the last five, 10 years. There are 11. Yeah, but there's more than that that have access to most adoptees. I think that most states allow adoptees non-identifying information, but there's not unrestricted access in the majority of the states. I think 17 states, you have to have a court order. 11 are unrestricted and the remainder have some level of restrictions in place. You have to have consent from a birth parent. In one state, you have to have consent from your adoptive parents. In another state, you have to have a high school diploma. There are all kinds of wonky, ridiculous rules. You know, some states you have to use an intermediary and the intermediary is often an adoption agency. So you're paying fees to an adoption agency to get your information after they made money off of you when you were adopted. If that's not a conflict of interest, I don't know what is. And so you have to be prepared. To be discriminated against. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Be I mean, prepared. And if you don't have the financial resources to deal with, you know, there are some people and some groups that will donate DNA tests to people who can't afford to get a DNA test done. I know the search co-op will sometimes try to find uh, donated DNA tests for people because uh, that costs money. And then you have to pay for your membership to Ancestry or 23andMe or MyHeritage or Family Tree DNA or GEDmatch, you know, you can upload your DNA for free to some of those, but if you wanna use all the functions, you have to pay for them. Uh, if you wanna use Legacy or PeopleFinder or newspapers.com, those all cost money. So those are all things that you might utilize if you go the DNA route. And then if you hire a genealogist, that's an additional expense that you need to uh, consider. If you can apply for your information, you should absolutely apply 
just be aware that you still may need to do DNA in order to use the information that you receive because you may just have your mother's name and she may have a common name or she, or she may have passed away and you may still wanna find relatives. So just be prepared to have to do a lot of work. Yes. And if you can get your adoption decree, at least in Illinois, where I was adopted, your surname is on that. And I've heard that's true in other states. So that's a big fat clue. If you can get your adoption decree from your parents or the court, then you may have, you know, more than what you might have in a state that birth certificates are blocked to you. Yeah. And you can sometimes go directly if you know the agency that did your adoption, you can sometimes go directly to the adoption agency and they may release some information to you that you won't receive through the state. If you were adopted through one of the Salvation Army homes, their hospitals, they have repositories for records that you can look up online and apply. Um, be very, very wary of anything that calls itself an adoption reunion registry. If the adoption reunion registry is not mandated by your state in order for you to get your records, just skip it because you're giving a lot of personal information to strangers and with, with very little chance that you're going to get matched because you may not have even been, like your parent may not even live in the state where you were born. They may have traveled to the state where you were born in order to give birth or to the country where you, cause my- Laugh sense too. Yeah. So you have a much better chance using DNA than you do a reunion registry. So if, if it's not mandated by your state, just skip it. Yeah, I mean, some state registries, they're still running, amazingly, that, you know, they claim to match you. And sometimes, at least in my state of Illinois, they would release your birth certificate if you received a match. Now in Illinois, the majority of people can get their birth certificate, but not all. Yeah. But that thing's still running. Yeah, it's... So. It's, it's, amazing there. To me. it's amazing to me what they do. Like in Texas, I, I believe it's Texas. You can get your original birth certificate as an adoptee if you know your birth parents' names. Yeah, catch 22. Yeah, so if you already know who they are, you can apply for and receive your certificate. And that's another thing to watch out for. When you're applying for your documents in a state that does not have unrestricted access, Keep in mind that the wording in the law says that they may release the information to you. Does not say that they have to or that they will. And many states have mechanisms that even if the state says, oh yeah, they can have it, the adoption agency can request that the, the records not be released. And you have to wait until they decide whether they're going to honor the adoption agency's request or your request. Some states have zombie vetoes, which means if your parent signed a non-disclosure when you were born or at any point 
up until they die, if they do not rescind that, you are not allowed to have your identifying information for a hundred years. That seems excessive to me. <laughs> Doesn't it? Just a little bit. It's crazy. So you just really have to look at the laws. There are several really good websites for that. There's adoptee rights uh, law that lists the states and the restrictions. There's Adoptees United. Uh, you can contact Adoptees Connect in your state if you have a group. So there Adoptee are- Adoptee Coalition also has a United States map. Yeah, so there are places you can go and we'll note them in the show notes because Lynn's really good at, she knows all this, these different organizations. Like she's my source of info. I, and then, I think Greg Luce's uh, adoption um, adoption rights law is that what it is yeah. adoption law his his is the one to me that I've noticed is the most thorough because he actually lists the code and the law so you can read it through yourself yeah and you can click on the links because what I do when I research for the podcast if I have an adoptee that I'm interviewing who's from Kentucky I'll go to Greg Luce's site and click on Kentucky. I'll read through his summary and then I'll click on the links to go to the actual law yeah. and I'll look at the laws and then I will Google adoptee access to records, Kentucky. And it'll take you, if you look enough, it'll take you to where you have to go to apply if you want your records in Kentucky. So that to me is another barrier to access for a lot of people because you and I might be able to read legal language and understand what it's saying because of our backgrounds mm -hmm. but your average person is not going to read a law and be able to decipher what they're saying yeah I think um, the state vital statistics might be one good place to go if you're not really wanting to read the law they'll tell you like on the vital stats what there's usually a little link that would say adoption and they'll just tell you flat out here's what you have to fill out here's what what hoops you have to jump through here's how much you have to pay yeah uh, yeah and every state too has a different name for their vital statistics department so it might be the department of children and family services or mm -hmm. it might be the vital statistics or in the uk it's the general registry office yeah. So, and it, keep in mind that the court record is separate from the state record. So your birth certificate's held at the state, but there's also a court record that I've known adoptees that can go to the clerk's office and get a copy of their adoption decree, no problem. Yeah. So all to, of those laws are different too. Yeah, you have to be very dogged. Yeah, yeah, you have to be very persistent and very determined and very, you, you need to think outside of the box. You really need to, you need to think beyond. So one of my final questions that I wanna ask you today, Andy, is what are some of your hopes for this podcast in the future? 
I would like eventually to interview someone from every state or multiple someones from every state. I would like, uh, you know, to be able to help educate the public adoptees and non-adoptees on, you know, the laws and what to expect. I just, and I want to just provide a platform for people to get their voices out there and, you know, be validated and know that they're seen and heard and valued. I, that's important to me. Yeah, that's amazing. And, you know, we can always learn something from other people's stories. I'm just amazed. I've listened to most every episode on this podcast because I love it. And I'm just amazed at all the stuff everybody else has gone through. Like you definitely feel less alone when you start hearing these stories, you know? Yeah. Well, and I appreciate that you enjoy the podcast. Thank you for listening. Uh, Sure. I really believe in this project. Um, I just, I feel like all of this stuff has kind of been obscure and hidden. And I, I think it's important that people understand the types of bureaucracy that we have to deal with just to get to know who we are. Yeah, and I really think it's good to um, let adoptees know that they have permission to ask the questions, that they have permission to feel however they're feeling, that they have permission to pursue their documents, and that you know we don't need to be held hostage by our fears of our adoptive family's reaction or our first family's reaction or the public because they seem to always have an opinion Uh, absolutely yeah yeah we we can give ourselves permission we can give others permission and it's okay we have we have a right it's it's okay to be curious and want to know where you come from it's human nature absolutely genealogy is for everybody we just have extra challenges that we have to face because of the way the laws are written in each state Yeah, and in different countries, too. Yep. Okay, well, it's been wonderful interviewing you, Andi. And um, um, I feel honored that you allowed me to do that today. (laughs) Thank you. Do you want to say a few words about what's coming up next? Or should we just close out? You know, there is a community among adoptees that I think we need to hear more from who I would really love to have on the show and provide them with a place to talk. And that is um, transracial and transnational adoptees because I think they is an extra layer of difficulty that they have to deal with and uh, providing them with a place to be heard and seen. Yeah, that sounds like an excellent idea. I hope you get some really great guests who wanna share their stories. Yeah, and if there's anybody out there that would like to talk about, you know, the process that you've gone through, or if you haven't started yet and you're not sure what to do, I, and you would like to be on the show, please get in touch with me. And I also know that adoption doesn't stop with the adoptee. So if you're an adoptee's child and you're trying to help them or they've passed away and you would like to know your family's history and where you come from. That's normal too. And I'd be happy to talk with you because I think people need to know that adoption is generational and it matters on a much larger scale than just the adoptee themselves. 
So um, bring up a great point. Yeah. You know, medical history, um, all all sorts of questions. If they don't get resolved in one generation, definitely transfers to the next. Yeah. And, and your stories and your desire to know who you are and where you come from are just as important. You know, you should have a right to know who your grandparents are, who, you know, who your aunts and uncles and cousins and things. And, you know, because so many people are adopted close to their own communities, you sh absolutely should know if you are part of a closed adoption or a a kinship adoption where they're not giving you the information or if you're donor conceived and you don't know who your parents or grandparents or whatever, you need to know that information just for your own physical safety and health. And so you don't date somebody that's related to you. That's yes. That's much <laughs> more specific. I like, do I say it? You don't want to have children with your first cousin or your half brother or your exactly. Yeah, you want to know who these people are. Exactly. Yeah. So so that's kind of just what I hope to do is just to have the podcast be available to whoever wants to get their story out there. And if they need some help figuring out the next steps, or they have some really great coping skills and strategies that they would like to share with people. Uh, Cause that's part of what we do on the show is talk about what works for people. So, so thank well, you for. Oh, you're welcome. It's been great. And I wish you the best of luck in the future and I'll be listening. All right. Well, thank you very much. So this was uh, our out of the ordinary episode of the adoption files thank you so much to lynn and thank you to the listeners and uh, have a good day